When Frank was talking about the, uh, the glass being half full or, or half empty, it reminded me of a uh, Far Side cartoon that I uh, read years ago. Uh, and it said that from the, uh, from the whole glass half full, there's actually four personalities uh, that uh, you can see interact with, with the glass and water. Uh, the first one is the, the optimist, the glass is half full. Then you have the pessimist, the glass, glass is half empty. Then the third personality is, is it half full? No, no, wait, it might be half empty. I can't tell. And then the fourth personality is, hey, I ordered a hamburger. So you can maybe tell what personality you have based on, on that. That's not from the Bible, by the way. That was, again, from the far side. Uh, when we do these uh, sermons here in, in, in Exodus, before that in Genesis, uh, I kind of have three things that I'm hoping to accomplish. Uh, the first thing that I'm hoping to accomplish is to help us all understand the, the history of the Old Testament better uh, and, and how the Bible, Bible flows. Uh, we want to uh, do a good job in interpretation uh, of, the, of Scripture uh, because there's only one interpretation, that's God's interpretation, and um, uh, that's it. Uh, God, if, if God would say, that's not what I meant, then that's a wrong interpretation. Uh, so we want to do a good job of that, and part of that is understanding historical context, and we want to do that and, and see how, how the Bible flows all together. Uh, the second thing, that, uh, the second goal that I have when, when going through these Old Testament narratives uh, is, uh, as I mentioned, that it's very foundational uh, to, to understanding our faith. Uh, and, uh, and so if we can find something in the Old Testament that, that is very relevant in the New Testament and helps us understand uh, our Savior better, salvation better, just uh, theological truths better, and how, they, and how the New Testament draws from, from the Old Testament illustration. I want to be able to, to point those things out uh, so that we understand that none of this is new, uh, that, uh, that God knew exactly what he was doing, uh, and, uh, and the Holy Spirit, as, as uh, Scripture uh, was, was written, that the Holy Spirit moved these human authors along to write exactly what, what God intended for them to write, um, and that it all, it all works together. The Old Testament is a great illustration for New Testament truth, uh, and so we'll point that out. The other third goal that I have is, um, is kind of the what's in it for me approach, as in what, how does this apply? Uh, and we have to make sure, uh, especially with, with narratives, uh, that, um, that our application has the authority of Scripture behind it. Uh, it's really easy to draw application that is not correct uh, from, from Old Testament narratives. Uh, because Old Testament narratives tell us what did happen, it doesn't always tell us what should have happened. Uh, and so we need to make sure that we have, the, we have an application, but that the application is, is, has the authority of Scripture. Uh, otherwise, it's just a nice self-help book, and, uh, and it doesn't really uh, equate um, to the authority of Scripture. And we want to make sure that whereas we're applying Scripture, that it has the authority of Scripture. There's a lot of books that are Christian books, that have application that do not have the authority of Scripture. Or sometimes a, a, a minister will preach something and he'll say something that's true, but it's true apart from the Scripture that he was reading and studying. Like, okay, that's a true thing, but that's not what that particular passage was saying or teaching or, or conclusion that they wanted you to draw. Uh, so that's the goal when we, when we look at these uh, uh, narrative 
passages, not just from the Old Testament, even, even the Gospel accounts, uh, we need to make sure that, that we're, we're trying to do those, those three, three goals in mind. And trying to do that this morning, it's not always, it's not always easy, uh, but uh, we do trust that the Holy Spirit will illumine our minds to understand the Word of God. Here we have the second lesson from Exodus, and we'll spend most of our time right in Exodus. Uh, and the, uh, uh, the title kind of gives you pretty much what this is all about. We have Moses, Excuses Denied. Moses, Excuses Denied. Last week we saw that the nation of Israel had their standing with Egypt take a 180-degree turn. Israel, the nation, was blessed by Egypt when Joseph brought his family to the nation. They were, they were in Canaan. There was severe famine, drought, uh, and, uh, and then just the, the difficulty of growing as a nation amongst uh, a group of people that, uh, that wanted to lead them uh, away from the one true God to the pagan gods that the Canaanites worshipped and served. Um, and God made it so that uh, Joseph was able to bring 70 people, uh, the start of the nation, into Egypt. And Egypt thought it was great. The Pharaoh thought it was great because, uh, because Joseph had, uh, had saved the nation of Egypt as well. And many lives were saved and, and they, were, they were happy to, to have them there. But a new king who had no knowledge of Joseph, or at least no regard for what Joseph had done for Egypt, comes on the scene. And instead of seeing the nation of Israel as a means of receiving God's blessing, Egypt now saw Israel as a threat. To control the threat, the new Pharaoh enslaved the Israelites, setting taskmasters over them. Pharaoh thought the heavy workload and the cruelty of the taskmasters would slow down the population growth of the Israeli nation. It didn't work. The Israelites kept having babies. But Pharaoh didn't give up. His new plan to control the population was to have a couple of Egyptian midwives secretly kill the Israelite male babies right after birth. The midwives, however, feared God more than Pharaoh, and they did not do that. Pharaoh then made, made the Egyptians' patriotic duty to kill male Israelite babies. If you love your country, this is what you'll do. And in fact, it was a command. They, they had to do it by, by, his, by his edict. So he commanded Egyptian citizens to cast young male Israelites into the Nile River to drown. This is a horrendous act by the Pharaoh. And he has an appointment to stand before God at the great white throne judgment and to give an account for his actions. We also saw last week that God heard the cries and knew the anguish his chosen people were experiencing. God began the process of bringing Israel back to the land that he had promised to them. As usual, God moves in his way, not in a way that we would suspect. The account introduces an important character, Moses. In this book of Exodus, Moses is the second most important character in the account, the first being the Lord. Pharaoh ordered the male babies to be thrown into the Nile because he was concerned about losing the slave labor the nation had benefited from. 
and to protect the Egyptian nation. It's interesting that the solution he adopted caused the very thing he feared to occur. Drowning Hebrew baby boys was the first domino in a long line of dominoes that brought destruction on the Egyptian nation. So we have Moses, and we see that Moses is being prepared for what the Lord would have him do. We see Moses' preparation. Moses was being prepared by his birth. Moses was one of the Hebrew baby boys that Pharaoh was trying to murder. His mom hid Moses for three months, but a time came when she could no longer hide him. She placed her son into a basket that she had prepared and floated him in the river bank where the royal Egyptian women bathed. Moses' older sister watched from a hiding place to find out what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter saw the basket and had it brought to her. When she lifted the lid, she saw a crying three-month-old baby boy. Instead of throwing the child into the river, she had pity on him. The baby's older sister comes out of hiding and asks Pharaoh's daughter if she needed a Hebrew woman to be a, um, a nursemaid for the child. You see, there were plenty of Hebrew women available to nurse because their sons had been tossed into the Nile River. So it made sense. Do you need a Hebrew woman who, who can do this? Uh, and uh, uh, the older sister knew of one woman in particular that would be very happy to nurse the three-month-old child, and that, of course, is the child's mother. Remember last week where we saw that God continued to bless his people even while Pharaoh cursed them? Pharaoh's daughter paid the child's own mother to nurse and nurture this abandoned child. Moms and dads, imagine somebody coming up to you and saying, I'd like to pay you to babysit your child. Amen. That is the right response. We say, okay. That sounds great. We were going to do it anyway, right? But now, Pharaoh, because it's, it's Pharaoh's daughter who's paying the bills. If you have daughters, you know the answer, right? Pharaoh is now paying Moses' mom to mother Moses. God blesses in the midst of others' cursings. So Pharaoh paid a Hebrew family to raise their own child. And here's the thing, and that child would be the one to lead the nation out of Egypt. God plays chess while the rest of us play checkers. Proverbs 16.9, it says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God is in control. Strictly speaking, this was not a miracle. We are too quick to call coincidences miracles. Miracles, by definition, are impossible according to the laws of nature. That's what a miracle is, something that is impossible according to the laws of nature. Why is that important to distinguish? Because Christ used miracles as a witness to his divine nature. Turning water into wine by just speaking, that's against the laws of nature. You can try it today. Go home, try it a thousand times, and the laws of nature say no. It would be a miracle for that to happen. To, to make a, a, a lame man from birth be able to walk, that's a, that's a miracle because the tendons and everything that need to develop in order for that to happen. Making a, a man born blind see, that's a miracle because the eyes don't develop 
uh, if, if they don't see from birth. If you're born blind, th there's, that's it. Unless, of course, Jesus says, no, miracle. Uh, so strictly speaking, this isn't a miracle. Um, there's no natural law broken in what occurred. But what happened with baby Moses, although not a miracle, it's important to remember that God is in charge of coincidences too. And in fact, this wasn't really a coincidence, but it's a divine providence. By birth, God is preparing Moses for his future calling. He was prepared by education. In Exodus 2.10, it says, When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. After weaning the child, Moses is brought back to Pharaoh's daughter. She adopts him as her own son. Royal Egyptian children receive a royal Egyptian education. The purpose of royal education is to prepare those students to run a nation. Moses is learning to lead a nation. Again, divine providence. Because what is the Lord about to ask Moses to do? To lead a nation. But he prepared him first through the Egyptian school system to learn how to do it. To learn how to do it. Scholars tell us that, uh, that the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, are styled according to uh, and in the same way as ancient Egyptian manuscripts. This is, how they, this is how they wrote. This is how they thought. This is how they reasoned. And you can see that in the first five books. Uh, God is using Egypt to prepare Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. It says in Hebrews 11, 24 through 25, by faith, and we read this earlier this morning, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Hebrews tells us that there came a time when Moses knew of his true lineage and chose to be a Hebrew rather than live comfortably as Egyptian royalty. Moses chose suffering over pagan sin. We see actions that show Moses had an innate predisposition toward delivering people and standing against tyranny. Moses hated injustice. In Exodus 2, 11 through 12, after Moses had, had left the, the, the royal life that he was, was leading to, to, to live with the, uh, with the nation of Israel as, as mistreated slaves, it says one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. We see that Moses had this predisposition towards injustice and towards delivering his people, delivering people from his nation. Moses had an inclination toward liberating oppressed people. The Christian martyr Stephen said this about Moses before the Pharisees stoned Stephen. In Acts 7.25, it says, He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. 
but they did not understand. When Moses was a, a young man, he had that desire to lead his people away from the oppression of the Egyptians. And he thought with a heroic act that they would look to him and say, yes, this is the guy. This is the guy that, that will lead us out. And they would, they would gladly follow. Uh, and in fact, you know, remember when, uh, um, when uh, Paul was, was uh, uh, ministering and, and performing miracles, they, they, well, even Jesus had this, they were going to make him king by force. And I think, uh, I think Moses had that thought that, you know, I, I could even stay humble. These people are going to want me to lead them uh, because look how prepared I am. You know, who, who else could lead a nation out? Uh, I have this special training and, and I have this burning desire within me to, to liberate my people. Uh, and he thought that, uh, that, that when, he, when he did this, that word would get out and they would, they would come to him. But instead it said they did not understand. So instead of feeling empowered, Moses feels rejected. Of verses after Exodus 2.13 and 14, the next day when Moses went out, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. They were fighting. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? The man answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Remember, Moses looked this way and that and didn't see anybody. And then he killed the Egyptian and hid it. And the very next day, instead of, of saying, hey, you know what? You, you delivered us. That guy was, was beating us and, and he, was, he was harsh. There was, there was no thankfulness in that, in that action. Instead, the guy kind of hints that, I know what you did. I know what you did, and, and I'm not impressed. Instead, Moses feels threatened by it, not empowered. So, Moses was afraid, and he thought, surely the thing is known. And it was. We're told that eventually the king heard about this and, uh, and came to, uh, to take Moses with the intention of, of killing him. And, and Moses escapes. But his act against the Egyptian taskmaster did become known. The current pharaoh sought to kill Moses when word got out. And so Moses fled to Midian. Once he was far enough away, he rested by a well. And then we see another instance where Moses' protective instinct kicked in. Once Moses gets to Midian, and here's a, here's a map of, of where Moses would have traveled from, from Egypt down to Midian, in case you don't know where Midian is, and quite frankly, why would you? Uh, but now, now you can have a, an idea of that. It says, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. That's hard work, by the way. Drawing water and enough water for, uh, for, your, for a flock, that's, that's time-consuming, that's difficult, hard work. And what happens once they have the troughs filled? It said, the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered the flock. 
once the hard work was done, a group of shepherds, hey, I find <laughs> there's already water here. Well, we can certainly move seven women and their sheep out of the way. And they did. But Moses stood up and said, no, that's, no, this, this is not what's happening. And so he, again, that, that instinct to deliver and to save and to hate injustice uh, comes to Moses and he, he deals with those guys and, uh, and he, he makes sure that the flocks get watered and he, he uh, protects the interests of the, of the seven daughters. The first act of Moses, the deliverer, led him to having to escape Egypt or be killed by Pharaoh. This act earned him a wife. I think the moral of the story is be careful of acts of heroism. <clears throat> it might end up getting you killed or making you get married. So be careful about that. But Moses is prepared by occupation. Moses works for his father-in-law, tending to the flock. In the commentary I read by uh, John Hanna, he wrote, Moses undertook the toilsome life of a shepherd, of a shepherd, sheep herder in the Sinai area, thus gaining valuable knowledge of the topography of the Sinai Peninsula, which later was helpful as he led the Israelites in that wilderness land. Moses had great understanding of the lay of the land. Where, where there was water, where there was vegetation, the areas to avoid, the, the being able to know directions based on the topography, where this mountain is and where this mountain is. Uh, and God used that. God was preparing him for that task. Moses might have been too hot-headed and impulsive to be used by God as the nation's deliverer at that point in his life, when he was 40. God is still preparing Moses for the task at hand. So the day comes when 40 years later, 40 years of preparation, being a, a sheep herder, that Moses is, comes before the Lord. Moses is tending his father-in-law's flock. He sees a strange sight near Mount Horeb, uh, also referred to as Mount Sinai. And that weird sight is a bush is on fire, but it is not burning up, which would be weird. And Moses sees that. In Exodus 3, verses 2 through 3, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. So back at verse 2, who appears in the flame? What does it say? It says the angel of the Lord. Who? One more time. Who? The angel of the Lord. Hold on to that. Earlier in Genesis, this interesting character called the angel of the Lord appeared to Sarah's servant, Hagar. Now the question that is asked is, who is the angel of the Lord? And the answer is the Lord. But wait, he, the angel of the Lord is the Lord? That seems like it's two different things, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. But look at verse 4. Who speaks out from the bush in verse 4? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Who called to him out of the bush? 
God did. Now, was it the angel of the Lord or was it God? Yes. The answer is yes. Uh, I was going to show a five-minute video, but I always go five minutes over, and I did the math, and that's ten minutes over, so I'm not showing it this week. But in a couple of weeks, we'll deal with this, with this idea again, uh, and, uh, and it's just, I thought I could go 30 minutes talking about it, or this five-minute video does a really good job, uh, and so uh, we'll show that here in a few weeks. But in the book of Exodus, the Lord makes a few different appearances. Keep looking as we study through this book, other times where this, where this comes up, the angel of the Lord, or is it the Lord? But the Lord continues to make himself known to Moses. And here is what? From the, the, the fiery bush, in verse 6, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. God then tells Moses how the cries of the people of Israel have come up to God and that God was going to bring them out of the land of Egypt and that when people would return to their ancestral home, a home flowing with milk and honey, God wanted Moses to play a major role in the deliverance from Egypt. This is the commission that God gives to Moses in verse 10. It says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you can bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. What do you think Moses would have said 40 years earlier? I'm ready. Point me in the right direction. I can do this. I am capable. I am able. I'm going to do a great job. He would have been thrilled. I've been waiting for this my whole life. He would have jumped at the opportunity to play a part. He might have even yelled out, I was born for this. Instead, Moses offers five excuses to not obey God's calling and purpose for Moses. And the first one that he uses is a, he says, when God says, I want you to do this, Moses says, God, I don't have the proper credentials. Right? Look at verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? What, what standing do I have to go before Pharaoh? Pharaoh is the most powerful man on earth. And you want me to go to him and tell him, let go of God's people? Who, who am I to do this? I've been, I've been chasing after sheep for 40 years. Who am I to go? He says, I have a lack of credentials. This excuse sounds very familiar to me. In, in the process of, uh, of candidating here at the church, and, and I was asked, we, we would like you to put your resume in uh, and, uh, and consider being the pastor of this church. My first thought was, I'm a line cook at a pizzeria. You want me to do what? You see, line cooks at pizzerias don't usually get called to be pastors. And I thought, and, and I'm only doing this for the summer because I'm a substitute teacher at a middle school. We, it, I don't have the credentials to do this. You know, I, I looked at the uh, church's website and uh, went through the bio of, of Pastor Eric. An engineering degree, 
a law degree, and then he has a, 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 an MDiv. And I was working at Rotolo's Pizzeria. I honestly thought, what's wrong with these people? <laughs> like, I'm going to, if I do, I'm going to keep my eyes open because they're not thinking straight. I told God, I don't have the credentials. Sorry, God, I don't have the credentials. Well, God answers Moses' objection, his excuse. Uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe Moses thought there were already elders in Israel that Pharaoh would, would have been, or Pharaoh's uh, middle managers would have, would have known about, and, and that maybe they had a little more clout, a little more understanding. Uh, but, uh, but basically, Moses' attitude is, God, I can't do it. I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody. God's response gives Moses all the credentials he needs. In verse 12, God said to him, but I'll be with you. That changes everything, doesn't it? But I'll be with you. Basically, what God is saying is, you're right, Moses. Now that you recognize this, you're actually useful. Because I'll be with you. And this will be the sign for you. Now, what well, the sign, all right? This is, this, Moses, this is how you will know that, uh, that, that I'll be with you and that, and that I'm, I'm enough, that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Isn't the timing off on that? Moses, you'll know I'm with you after you've done the deed. Well, I kind of want the assurance before, and God says, no, I'm going to give it to you after. What does that force Moses to do? Act in faith. Yeah. God says, I'll be with you. And that's all the credentials anybody needs. Dwight L. Moody was a, was a shoe salesman before becoming one of the greatest well-known evangelists in the history of the United States. Moody's Sunday school teacher had this to say about Moody uh, once, he, once he got saved. He was around 17, 18 years old when, when, he, when he got saved. Uh, and this is what his Sunday school teacher said about him. He said, I can truly say, <clears throat> and in saying it, I magnify the infinite grace of God as bestowed upon him, that I have seen few persons whose minds were spiritually darker than was his when he came into my Sunday school class. And I think the committee of the Mount Vernon Church seldom met an applicant for membership more unlikely ever to become a Christian of clear and decided views of gospel truth. Isn't that a ringing endorsement? Uh, so he said, still less to fill any extended sphere of public usefulness. It took the, the committee a year before they uh, accepted Dwight Moody into membership because they were just that unsure of him. The question we must ask is, is God enough? The sign of certainty that God offers to Moses will take place in the future. God tells Moses that Moses will know God had indeed sent Moses for that purpose when Moses comes back to that exact mountain where the bush was on fire with the people of Israel, where God will meet with Moses in the presence of all the people. At that point, there will be no doubt that God sent Moses to Egypt to deliver God's people. 
God's answer does not satisfy Moses. Look at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? He's saying, I lack qualifications to even, I don't even know your name, God. I don't know your name. Certainly, there's somebody who, who has more knowledge, more understanding. Moses was raised in an Egyptian school, right? Do you know what the Egyptian schools don't teach? They don't teach about the true God. You don't go to an Egyptian school to learn about the, the one true God. Moses knew all about the Egyptian gods, but he says, God, I don't even know your name. I don't know who you are. Well, this is interesting because it says uh, in verse 14, God gives an answer. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The pre-incarnate Christ was in the bush. Jesus claimed to be the angel of the Lord, the great I am, the ever-present one. Jesus claimed to be God, having always existed. <clears throat> in the Gospel of John, uh, the Pharisees get into an argument with Jesus, and they're, they're talking about um, our father Abraham, and, uh, and, and Jesus is confronting them on their sin, and they say to Jesus, we know who our father is, insinuating, we don't know who your father is. They did the math and it didn't, it didn't add up. They said, we don't, you know, we know who your mom is, but we, we don't know who your dad was. And Jesus, what did Jesus say to them? Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus claimed to be Jehovah or Yahweh. We're not really sure how to pronounce it uh, because it was the habit of the Israelites to not say the name of God because they didn't want to take the Lord's name in vain. And so uh, we don't really know how to pronounce it, but Jehovah Yahweh, that's, that's our best guesses on that. Uh, and Jesus said, I am. God in the bush said, tell them the I am has sent you. The ever-present one. Moses still wasn't satisfied. He kept trying to get out of God's calling. He didn't want to participate with God and God's mission. He says in Exodus 4, verse 1, Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. They're going to say, that. Oh, we don't believe you. I, Moses is saying, I lack credibility. I lack credibility. I'll t I tell them, the I am sent me, and they're going to say, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. We don't know who you are. Who, who, get real. The people will have no reason to believe God sent Moses was Moses' concern. He was afraid he didn't have the credentials to go before Pharaoh, but he's saying even the, the people that you're sending me to represent, they're going to say, you're nobody. Knock it off. Quit. Get out of here. Moses said he lacked the authority for both Pharaoh and he now is concentrating on his lack of credibility with the Israelites. Remember the Israelite that questioned Moses when Moses broke up the fight between the two Israelites? Do you remember that? Moses did too. He hadn't forgotten. They didn't see Moses as a deliverer. He was afraid they would see him as a two-bit thug. God responds by granting Moses three sign miracles. 
The first sign was Moses' staff turning into a serpent. That's not a coincidence, that's a miracle. The second sign was Moses getting leprosy by sticking his hand into his own robe and then reversing the action when he stuck it back in. The last sign was turning the water from the Nile into blood. God granted Moses the ability to perform these three miracles. Do you think Moses was satisfied? No, not yet. Moses is still not satisfied. Look at Exodus 4, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Moses says, I lack eloquence. You want me to do this public speaking? You want me to stand before Pharaoh and the entire nation? You want me to go before the Israelites and convince them that I was sent by you? You you called, when he says, in the past I have not been eloquent or since you've tasked me with this, Moses is saying, yeah, God, you've tasked me with this responsibility, but, but my speech hasn't changed. I still am who I am. You know, if you want me to do this, you're going to have to change me into somebody else. I lack eloquence. At this point, God is frustrated with Moses and his poor excuses. When, you, when we read this, I want you to, to read it with the sense of, of, of what was God's emotion during this. So then the Lord said to him, in verses 11 through 12, who has made man's mouth? That's a good question. I love answering rhetorical questions. Love it. It's very helpful. So I'll ask the question that God asked. You give me the answer. Who has made man's mouth? God. Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? God says, is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I'll be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. And God is getting a little frustrated. And after God says this, we finally get to the real issue. After all of the excuses are answered and addressed, we get to the real point. Moses' final excuse. After, God has, after each one, God has patiently answered it. God has given him assurances. He says, but I don't speak good. And God says, I'll be with your mouth. I'll be with you and your mouth, Moses. Verse 13, Moses said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Now, if you grew up thinking Moses was this, born this great man of faith, is your opinion starting to change of Moses? Just wait until next week. Moses' excuse really is that he simply lacked courage. Simply lacked courage. What we have left is Moses' unwillingness to trust God and obey. Yes, there were reasons Moses had, past experiences that were hurdles, but Moses' eyes were on himself rather than on the God who would deliver his people. Our personal shortcomings and difficulties are not viable excuses to not serve God or to not obey God's commands, to stay on the sidelines where it seems safe and comfortable. God has prepared us for so much more. We are useful to him. God accomplishes so much with broken people. It is a mistake to offer God excuses. 
I'm reminded of my oldest son, who's not here, but will certainly watch this later, uh, that uh, I talked to him about being on the football field and, and going through warm-ups. And he says, every single game going through warm-ups and, and seeing the crowd start to come, he said, every time I would say to myself, why do I do this to myself? Why am I putting myself out there? And it's even worse when he wrestled because there's only two people on the mat at a time and there's nowhere to hide. Why do I do this? Why do I put myself out there? And then you start doing it. And there's no experience like it. It's the same way in the Christian life. To use excuses or, or just I'm afraid or I, I don't have the ability, uh, I, don't have, I don't have what it takes, who am I? I'm going to stay safe and stay safe on the sidelines <clears throat> where, where I don't, I'm not vulnerable. People won't see me mess up. They, they won't think, you know, what's wrong with him? Come on. I, you know, even at high school games, I hear parents start yelling at the players and I'm thinking, yeah, great. Yell at that 16-year-old. It makes you feel like a man. They're, they're afraid. Why, why, you know, I don't want to put myself out there. And then you start doing it. You're in the game, and there's nothing like it. Did you notice how patient God was with Moses? Friends, God will be patient with you. But did you notice as well that at some point God has enough? God will have enough with our excuses too. So after this long conversation with the reluctant Moses... God recommissions Moses again. It says in verse 14, it says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming here to meet you, and when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth, and I'll be with his mouth, and I'll teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. He shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. God says, enough. Get at it. God gives Moses the resources Moses needs to fulfill God's requirements. But Moses does not serve with gladness. His reluctance to obey makes his calling miserable. And we see that next week. Moses serves God, but he does it without faith. The task becomes tedious, and there is no joy because of it. So again, we'll see that reality next week. The message for today is that God is enough for us to serve him faithfully. Our history, our shortcomings, our lack of courage doesn't hinder God's desire and his ability to use us. God doesn't want us to be confident in ourselves. Our confidence is in the Lord. And when that is the case, we have no excuses to offer. Instead, we serve him joyfully and faithfully. Heavenly Father, thank you for your patience. Thank you that you are with us and that you're always enough. And Father, it makes me think that Jesus died on the cross and that was enough, that we don't add to it. Instead, uh, we don't add to our salvation. Instead, we receive it as a gift, a gift from you. Thank you that salvation isn't earned or based on merit, just like Moses wasn't based on merit, but he was based on the fact that you called him to it. 
and Father, that you have made us, you've made it known to us that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, that he is sufficient. Help us, Father, to recognize that his sufficiency isn't just for salvation, but his, sufficient, his sufficiency goes into each and every day as we serve. We ask for help in this and growth in our understanding. In Jesus' name, amen.